Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. You are listening to episode 251 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. I hope you guys are doing fantastic. I am super excited. I'm recording this episode from my hotel room in San Diego. My husband and I, we came to San Diego to celebrate the closing of enrollment of my signature course, Bedroom Fizzle to Sizzle. And I'm so honored for all of you who signed up for this program from all over the world. And I cannot wait to be part of your journey of transforming your relationship in the next six weeks. Because how busy last few weeks been, I totally forgot to record this introduction. I was on my way to San Diego and my wonderful editor contacted me and let me know that I haven't submitted introduction and I envisioned this perfect situation that I'm recording an introduction, looking over water and this historic hotel. We are at, we're staying at Hotel del Coronado, which is if you guys watch movies, some like it hot. Marilyn Monroe and Tony Curtis played the movie here, which was one of the old classic. And it's nothing like what I envisioned. The hotel is beautiful, <laughs> but we are next door, I think, to a suite filled with children. Every time that I'm trying to record, they start screaming. So I hope that they remain silent for next few minutes <laughs> so I can finish this introduction. I'm very excited about this episode. We're going to talk about the lifestyle changes that you can make to transform your sexuality. The new approach in the field of sexuality is to helping you to optimize your sexual health by making lifestyle changes. Our guest is Dr. Stephanie Estimasos. Stephanie is a board-certified doctor of chiropractic with a special interest in metabolism, body composition, hormones, and functional neurology. She is the host of an award-winning podcast and author of international best-selling book. We're going to talk about her book. We're going to talk about her experience of how she changed her lifestyle that helped her to change her sexuality and overall health. I learned a lot from her. I hope this episode will be useful for all of you as well. Before going to the interview, I wanted to ask you for your opinion. So we are coming up to our fifth year anniversary. As you know, in last five years, I've been recording episodes, new episode every single week. And I was looking at the catalog of the information and I covered every single topic in the field of sexual health. And what I discovered in my recent questionnaire that listeners of this shows are coming from very different backgrounds. Partly are other therapists, healthcare providers, physicians, nurses, and part the other part of our listeners are everyday couples that they want to improve their sexual health and individuals they want to learn about themselves. So what I'm envisioning is to really niche down to serve you the content that will be useful for you. I want to tailor and curate the content that would be really, really exciting and related to what you want to learn and I need your help. We created a very brief questionnaire 
I think it takes like less than five minutes to answer. And I certainly hope that you take some time to write down what do you want to learn more of. So I'm going to definitely create the content based on the feedback I'm getting from you guys, because I feel I cannot be able to serve so many different groups of people. So I need your help. And as a thank you for those of you who spend time to take the survey, you will enter to win a Amazon gift card. And I'll be super grateful for you to for giving me your feedback. All right. I know I talked a lot. I'm not going to make you wait more. And here's my conversation with Dr. Stephanie Estimas. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and honored to have Dr. Stephanie Steam on our show. Dr. Stephanie, welcome to our show. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, it's lovely to connect with you. I was sharing with you that I, I enjoyed your book and I know you talked about your journey of arriving to this place that you are right now with focusing on overall health. So tell us a little bit more about that. How did you shifted your overall life balance from the place you were to the place that you are right now? Yeah. I mean, it's as, as any journeys go, it's, it's always a lifelong quest, but there's been definitely an evolution in terms of how I used to look at my body and respond to my body uh, and my health needs and how I do it now. So the way that I used to do it was that I would just just pretend and act like I was a little man. So I completely disregarded any symptoms that I had around my menstrual cycle, any pain that was coming up, any tenderness. Like I used to have just the, you know, the worst cramps. My breasts felt like they were angry all the time. And, you know, a lot of cramping, a lot of pain, a lot of moodiness around, um, around the onset of my period. I used to just disregard it. Like it wasn't important. I would just take medication to silence it really was like that for years and really came, you know, and I talk about this in my book, which I know we're going to talk about some of the principles of the book today, but I talk about my journey in that there was this time in my life where I had been, you know, kind of ignoring my body for decades. And then I had these two really big stressful events happen where the the clinic that I was practicing, like I owned and ran this clinic, there was a fire, the clinic burned down. And at the same time, I was going through a divorce with the, with, with young children. So anybody who has ever gone through a divorce knows how difficult and awful it can be at the best of times. And then you add in like two very young children and it's, you know, it's heartbreaking and it's like, it's just, you know, guts you from the inside. So lots and lots of stress. And I decided to take my kids, my family to, to Italy for a little R&R, very much needed rejuvenation and rest and all of that. And during that time, while I was in Italy, you know, obviously slowing down a lot, wasn't seeing, wasn't having the patient load that I normally have, was sleeping in, was going for lots of walks, getting lots of natural sunlight, uh, having a lot of unprocessed. I mean, maybe there's, you know, I was definitely having like pastas and, and gelato and the pizzas and stuff, but it was, you know, very much whole food, minimally processed stuff. And what I noticed while I was there towards the end of my trip there was that I got, I got my period, which normally, you know, uh, would have ruined everything, but it didn't. It was actually just like any other day. It was like any other day of my cycle. 
And I was really curious to see if I could bring, like, if I could tease apart what were some of the things that I, that I did in this particular cycle that allowed me to have this really wonderful menstruation. So I came back home. My home is in Toronto, Canada, kind of a big urban center. And, you know, it was really working with myself and my patients now to say, okay, so if I get more sleep, how does that change things? If I start to change the way that I eat during my menstrual cycle, how does that change things? If I get more natural sunlight and I start honoring the circadian, my circadian biology, how does that change things? You know, uh, stress management, and how does that change things? And really what I've come up with is this working body of knowledge that is specific to females. Um, so myself and the female patients that allowed me to kind of experiment with them, we have, you know, protocols now that we talk about where we're talking about nutrition as it relates to your menstrual cycle, exercise as it relates, supplementation, you know, stress management, all these different things. And then of course, you know, my age now, I'm in, I'm, you know, in my mid, you know, early to mid forties, I'm 43, you know, I'm also starting to think about perimenopause and menopause. So how some of the things that I'm doing now will help prepare me for what I hope will be a wonderful transition um, into menopause. And I no longer fear that as I know a lot of women can, right? We're all told by the media that it's like the, you know, you're going to be, you know, it's like hot flashes. And of course those symptoms exist. Of course, women have that, but I really want to figure out and deconstruct ways that I can help women, myself included, to help have this beautiful transition into menopause and beyond. Well, Dr. Stephanie, when you were talking about your experience of not necessarily focusing on health and the vacation and seeing the positive result, I, I was reminded of my, uh, vacation I, I took a couple of years ago that I went with my dad. And when I go with my dad, we take this like a really fun vacation, not thinking about anything. And my life usually here is very structured. Like this is a morning routine. This is a schedule of patients. So it's very structured. And it was no structure. What I've noticed though, is that I was eating whatever I wanted and kind of like uh, not necessarily thinking about this is the plan and this is the structure. And my body responded so much better. And unintendedly, I, I lost weight. It was just surprising to me. So which also made me wonder that there are like the information we have, like similar to what you mentioned, that it's more male focused. That is, this is not about you have to have calorie deficit. This is what you're doing. So it's important to design a lifestyle that matches your body and use your body as a compass compass so you can find and navigate life. So I know in your book, you talk about diet. So tell us a little bit about how does our diet and sexual health connect it? Oh my goodness. So I think that there's a huge connection there. And part, a big part of the book is around using sex and orgasms and our sensuality and our sexuality as a means and, and a tool for healing. So I want to talk about diet, but I just want to pre-frame it by saying that so often women are taught, you know, and this is, you know, across many cultures. So this is, I'm speaking specifically about my experience growing up in a North American culture, but I also, you know, have an ethnic background of Lebanese and Portuguese. So there's, it's there's also that kind of intertwinedness there where we're really taught as women to fear 
you know, our sensuality to fear our fertility. Like you can just get, you know, at least I was, I was raised Roman Catholic. So we use, I used to think as a young girl, like I could walk into the pool and get pregnant. Like at this, I could, and I could never do that to my family, you know? So we're, we're really taught to be fearful of our sexuality and our sensuality. And then we're just expected to like turn it on. You know, if you're raised in more of a traditional conventional way that I was that you just turn it on once you get married. Right. So I just wanted to pre-frame that because I think that women are inherently sexual beings, right? We're sensual, we're sexual. And I think that we turn that off to adapt to society. So the ways that we can, you know, use diet as an amplification to get to know ourselves better is, well, there's many ways, but you know, the first thing that comes to mind when you, when you ask that question is reducing inflammation, right? So sexuality starts in our brain. Like we, a lot of us think it starts, you know, in our genitals and our reproductive organs. And, you know, there's some, there's some truth to that, but, you know, being, sensual and being sexual. This is a brain based, like we see something that we're attracted to, you know, maybe we talk to the person that we are interested in. And there's this whole sort of neurological connection that happens. And when you are inflamed, you know, so when you are eating, let's say a diet that might be more along the flavor of the standard American diet. So a lot of processed foods, lots of trans fats, this is going to affect not only the way you feel in your body, but the way that your brain operates, you are going to be more inflamed. It is more toxic to an area in the brain that is really involved in decision-making in our frontal lobe, our prefrontal cortex. And we tend to make poor, like when we're inflamed, we don't make the best decisions. So first piece is when you are eating foods that are whole foods, largely unprocessed, you know, if you're having plants, there's lots of phytonutrients and some of the antioxidants and, you know, polyphenols that can come from eating plant-rich foods. And then of course, if you're a meat eater, you know, the full complement of, you know, amino acids and you're getting all your B vitamins and all those kinds of things, you're going to help to reduce your inflammation. Like nobody wants to get busy you know, when we feel like, oh, I feel so puffy. And, you know, so that's the first thing. The second thing is energy, right? I mean, reproduction, you know, if you want to just talk about it from like an act, like a verb, you know, there's a lot of energy that goes into that, right? So for the male, it's like producing the sperm and like the cardiovascular stuff and the same with a woman, right? It's like the lubrication and the movement and all that kind of stuff. So having a diet that provides you with energy that allows for clean energy to be burning, I think is really important in terms of our sexuality and of course, mood, right? So we've mentioned mood a little bit in terms of, you know, if your hormones are all over the place, you know, especially for women, we are much more, we're not little men. So we have this whole menstrual cycle. If you're in your reproductive years to, to take into consideration your hormones, if they're out of whack, that is going to impact your libido. If you don't have enough testosterone, that's going to impact your libido and your sex drive and your, you know, desire for sex. If you are estrogen dominant, you know, it's that, in, that pro-inflammatory state where like your rings are tight and you're holding water and you're moody and all of that. So I think that when you eat in a way that's in line with your biology as a woman, and you're eating in a way that is going to honor getting your hormones in check. And I realize when I say getting your hormones balanced, like 
you know, endocrinology is a huge field, right? And we can go down each of the different rabbit holes of like estrogen uh, metabolism and androgen metabolism, but generally your hormones need to be kind of balanced for you to be in the mood and for you to have desire and for it to feel good as well. So one of the things that I talk about in my book is structuring a there's sort of two phases to the way that I will start someone on nutrition. One is a therapeutic intervention of a ketogenic diet. So that means one month or so of doing pure keto for women. And then after that, I actually don't want women on keto for a long time. So a lot of people in the ketogenic community will, will stay on keto forever and ever and ever. And, you know, for women that can really impact our hormones. It can impact our serotonin levels, our dopamine levels, all these different things. So I will take a woman do keto, like 100% keto for about a month. And then I'll take her into what I call keto cycling, where we are cycling her in and out of a ketogenic diet. And we alternate weeks of keto and then high protein and slightly higher carbohydrates as well. And we can kind of get into the details if you like, but you know, that's, that's the overview of it. And that's what I have found to be true for my females in terms of keeping up the lifestyle. Like anyone can lose weight, right? Like anyone can lose weight for, you know, we can all lose five pounds, but then it's, it's the keeping off of the five pounds that most people have a really hard time with. And so it's about understanding your menstrual cycle and then pairing up your nutrition to where you are in, in your cycle, if you're in your reproductive years. And then I also talk about some considerations for menopause as well. Well, one thing that you were talking about it in the book that was interesting, and you were talking about your experience that I bet it resonates with lots of our listeners is that binge eating kind of drive that comes around women's like the few days before and during period. And it's really helps them to, it causes them to get off their diet. It's not working. So it, and it creates lots of frustration. My background is uh, on treatments of eating disorders. So I have like, I, I, I think it's important, as you said, to pay attention to your body and the messages that your body gives you. But tell us when people are on ketos, what do they, it's all, I always curious about that. What do they do with that kind of like a binge and that part of the drive? Because the diet is more defined. Right. Yeah. So this is, uh, I talk a lot about this in the book in terms of not necessarily white knuckling your way through eating the same way all the time. And just to, you know, to your point, right before a woman gets her period and then into the first couple of days when she's menstruating, what we actually see in the body is we see an upright, like an uptick of her metabolism. So if I were to, you know, take a look at your blood, let's say a week before I would do, do a blood draw and I would look at your, you know, plasma, uh, glucose, amino acids, fatty acids, those would all actually be lower in week four of your cycle versus week three or week two and the later part of week one. And the reason for that is because your body is literally taking those substrates. It's taking the glucose, the amino acids, the fatty acids, and it's directing them to the endometrium. And the endometrium is basically the lining of the uterus you're waiting for the, like your body's waiting for this fertilized egg. And in, in waiting for it, it's basically plumping up the lining in anticipation of it. So this is whether or not you want a child, right? So if you want a baby or not, your body does this every month, you know, if you're in your reproductive years. So one of the mistakes that I used to make was I used to try to eat the 
same way all month long. Like I would try to do keto. I would try to do, you know, the Atkins that I was like, you know, whatever, whatever diet I was following at the time. And I would always crash and burn in this fourth week. Like I wanted the chocolate. I was like, want, I was craving salty foods. And, and the reason for that, and I was trying to resist it, was because my metabolism was higher. My body was working at a frenzied pace to try and build out this endometrial lining. So I counsel women to just cut the energetic cords, right? Like it, you should be eating more this week. So if your total, you know, caloric, let's say you're just for ease of math, let's say you're having 1500 calories, let's say this week, you should actually be having 10 to 15%, maybe even up to 20% more calories this week than you would in, in other weeks because, because of that increased metabolic rate. So, and I, and I like, I will generally also counsel women to have more protein this week as well. Protein is a bit more satiating, has a thermogenic effect, uh, makes you feel fuller longer and, and more carbohydrates, but the good carbohydrates, right? Like the carbohydrates that we get from green leafy vegetables, from vegetables in general, from resistant starches, this kind of thing. And I think one thing that really helped me to understand the role of eating and our sexual drive and hormone was working with women who were very kind of more in starvation mode. Like I, I work at residential facilities with women who were kind of like struggled with anorexia nervosa for years. And they had the body that what people kind of think it's desirable, but they had they reported no to very low desire. And right. it was telling us that, okay, that you need energy, you have, you need hormonal health in order to want to have sex. Because what I noticed in eating disorder recovery, when my clients are in weight restoration, they tend to experience desire. Like when they start talking about sex, it's a good sign that they are moving toward recovery. So tell us uh, what are some of the recommendations that you have for women about how they can optimize their hormones through diet? Oh, so this is such a good question. And, you know, to your point around, you know, the patients that you used to treat, this lack of desire, this is why I don't like women on keto forever, because what we actually see is these neurotransmitters that are involved in desire tend to be squashed, right? So we know that, you know, when we think of you know, the, the one, there's many, but one of the primary neurotransmitters involved in desire is dopamine. So dopamine is the neurotransmitter of pursuit, of motivation, of drive, of desire. And we, of course, we have sensing neurons in the gut that will then connect through to the brain that will talk to us about desire. So if you're not, if you're not feeding that, if your enteric nervous system, the nervous system that lives in your gut is not being fed, then it's not going to be sending those messages up to the brain. And then we don't have, as you were mentioning, like the desire, like people are lethargic, they don't care about things. They're just, you know, or maybe they're, you know, in the case of eating disorders, there's also a bit of a ruminating piece to where you're just like, okay, I just got to get a little thinner. I got to get, or I can't gain weight. Like if I gain weight, it's the worst thing. So they have this other neural network that continues to, to circulate, but they lose things like their libido. So when I think about, you know, ways that we can eat to optimize our hormones, there's a couple of different, there's a couple of different ways. First is I mentioned one of them before is increasing protein intake. And one of the things I like about protein is it has sort of, you know, when we think about protein, when we're consuming protein, there is a process called muscle protein synthesis or MPS. And what MPS does is just kind of what it sounds like. It's synthesizing new proteins. So when you're consuming more protein, 
So usually, and you know, this can be any protein source, but I tend to bias towards meat-based sources because of the full complement of amino acids there. It's just easier to, you know, kind of get your full amino acids in there. But when you're when you're having protein, you are going to be driving muscle protein synthesis. You are going to be driving increasing your lean muscle mass. So the hormonal consequence of that, of having more muscle mass, is that you're going to have more testosterone. And so when we think about sexuality and sensuality and desire, of course, testosterone, you know, not only is it involved in maintaining lean muscle mass, but it's also involved in libido. And one of the things that we see with our perimenopausal women, of course, is as testosterone begins to decline, they might start reporting things like obviously decreased libido, but other things like vaginal dryness and painful penetrative sex and, you know, poor lubrication and all these different things. So when we're having protein in the diet, like a proper whole food, you know, maybe it's steak or it's chicken, or I know there's a like, to, you know, if you're doing vegetarian, it's like tofu and tempeh and stuff, but you're getting a full, complete amino acid profile that's going to help drive your lean muscle mass, which will help with testosterone, which helps with libido. So that's, that's one of the main strategies for women that I think that they need to be aware of. And then just with protein, there tends to be a lot of like myths around it. Like, oh, it's really bad for my kidneys. And oh, it's really bad. And this is not, I mean, there's very specific outliers where this is true, but for 95% of the population, protein is, you need to be consuming protein. And if you just think of the word pro comes from the Greek protos, which means first. So it is proteins exist in every single cell in the body. We need to be having protein. So that's one thing. In terms of balancing your hormones, another thing, and I alluded to it before, was a lot of green leafy vegetables. So for women who are who tend to have hormonal, like one of the more common hormonal disruptions that I tend to see is estrogen dominance. So you probably talked about this on the podcast before, but estrogen dominance is basically when your estrogen levels as a woman are higher relative to your progesterone. So one of the things that you can do to help bring that into balance through your diet is by consuming green leafy vegetables, specifically vegetables in the the brassica family. So this is like the, you know, the Brussels sprouts and the broccoli and the broccoli sprouts and the cauliflower and the bok choy and all that kind of stuff. These have a compound called sulforaphanes in them, which are going to amplify estrogen metabolism, meaning it's going to help your body get rid of the extra estrogen if you have it. So that's a one way that I, another way rather that I help counsel people through nutrition to help with hormonal balance. And then the last piece is maybe a little more controversial, but I'm just going to tell you anyway, and it's uh, it's around fiber. So fiber is amazing. We get it in things like the green leafy vegetables. We get it in most vegetables. There's two different kinds. We have soluble and insoluble fiber. For women who are in their late 40s, early 50s, so what we know fiber does is that it will bind to, let's so say, bulks up the stool, attracts water to it, helps kind of clean out the, you know, kind of works as like a little pipe cleaner in the intestines. But one of the things it also does is it will bind excess, it will bind to excess estrogen metabolites. It'll also bind to excess sex hormones like estrogen, like testosterone, et cetera. So for my ladies who are in their late stage perimenopause, maybe early menopause, especially if they have a lot of plants, I actually like to look at how much fiber they're having. Because if your estrogen levels are quite low and your testosterone levels are quite low and you're having a massive amount of fiber, what your fiber is 
basically doing is it's sopping up the little hormone that you have and it's getting rid of it. So for my ladies who are like, call it, you know, late forties, early fifties, I'm not saying I want you to go carnivore. That's not what I'm saying, but I do like to review how much fiber they're taking in because sometimes, especially if they're, if they're complaining of the low libido, if they're complaining of the vaginal dryness, the painful penetrative sex, the poor lubrication, you know, all the things that we see with low T and low E, low estrogen, I like to just review how much fiber they're having. And then maybe they stay the same or we counsel them to like reduce their fiber intake so that they're not getting rid of the, you know, the precious small amounts of hormone that they that they that they are producing. Well, what a great wealth of knowledge you shared with our listeners, and we don't talk much about diet here. So it's good that you have an expert that brings this information to 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 this conversation. And you know what's interesting is. When I was younger, I, was, I wasn't sure about the power of holistic medicine. But as I go through different stage of life, I see that it's really powerful. I know many of my clients that they are in perimenopausal years, they made significant changes in their hot flashes symptoms just by t- changing their diet, like adding things like soybeans, working with someone like you that specialize in this kind of work and they see results. So these things, these changes are important and what a beautiful way of balancing our body through food. I know the new wave through may wave of medicine is food medicine. And I think that's really good that people can have access to this information from resources here, like your book and expert like services you provide. I also know in the book, you talked about sleep and, and I know sleep is one of those topics that's to me, it doesn't sound sexy, but it makes a significant <laughs> change yeah. in your yeah. life. Yeah. So tell us more about how, how is our sleep and sex life is connected. They're connected. Well, sleep might not be sexy, but if you're getting sleep, I promise you're probably getting more sex. So, uh, or you are in the mood at least for more sex. So when we think about sleep, and this was like the biggest chapter in the book was like sleep and sex. First, when you're not, when you're not getting enough sleep, and this is true for most Americans, right? I, I believe the stat in there was like one in three Americans, like, you know, approximately 70 to 80 million Americans report that there is some type of sleep disturbance that they have on a regular basis. So there's some type of insomnia or they're not feeling waking up feeling refreshed. So when you're not getting enough sleep, what that happened, you know, on a metabolic level, in terms of your physiology, you actually become, you, your metabolism changes. So you're, you are going to, and most of you, you know, you probably know this, like we, when we've pulled all nighters for board exams, right? Like we didn't sleep, we were living on coffee, right? And then after that, after the boards, you know, you crash, right? Like you're exhausted and you just eat crap and you tend to crave more sugary, simple foods when you're sleep deprived. So you tend to want more sugary foods your body actually metabolizes fats and sugars differently, meaning that you're much less likely to burn fat in a sleep deprived state. You're much more likely to want to just burn glucose or glycogen. So you're not actually getting into your fat stores. So if you're someone who's thinking about weight loss, which a lot, a lot of women do, you know, being sleep deprived is not the way to do it. So that's, that's the first thing. Of course it affects our mood, right? So if you're sleep deprived, we all know one of the most toxic things to the brain is sleep deprivation. It's a form of torture. <laughs> you know, like the government uses that as a, you know, they, they will deprive people of sleep because their decision-making ability tanks. 
And, you know, we all, and I refer to uh, Dr. Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep. He talks about in this book, you know, twice a year, if you're, uh, you know, a state or a province that honors daylight savings time and, you know, spring forward, fall back, you know, those two times, especially in spring, when we lose that hour in the first three days after that time change, there's more heart attacks, there's more car accidents. I think he also says in the book, something like judges are much much more harsh in their in their sentences for for defendants or defendants or plaintiffs or whatever the name is. So you see all these changes, right? There's a card we have like real time physiological, like it's harder on the heart, it's harder on the brain. We we're not as as savvy decision makers. So of course that's going to impact your desire for sex. I mean, you have in our libido in 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 many ways is a safety signal, right? For you to engage in, you know, this intimate act with someone, you have to feel safe, right? Your environment has to feel safe. You don't want to feel like you're chasing a tiger. And so when you're sleep deprived, that's actually what happens. You move into the stress physiology, you move into the sympathetic nervous system, uh, which is a branch of the nervous system often called like fight, fight, flight. And you, and you're sort of always in this like place of tension. So that's not really the ideal environment for you to, you know, be naked and get vulnerable and be intimate with someone if you're kind of expecting an attack. So I would say that sleep is probably one of the biggest influences on our, on our libido and our sexuality. So making sure that you get, you know, at least, at least eight hours. Like I know the recommendation is usually like seven to nine for women. Our sleep length is actually a little longer than our men. So on average, anywhere from 15 to 45 minutes, we will sleep longer than our male counterparts. So if you're someone who sleeps in a bed with a man, you know, and he, and you're both getting up at the same time, you know, that might be unavoidable, but make sure that you're going to bed at least 15 minutes before he does so that you can still be able to have that regular length of your, of your sleep cycle. Well, I think such an important point on the importance of prioritizing sleep because uh, sometimes people say that I just don't have energy to have sex. That's the number one kind of complaint that I hear that like, I just, I'm not in the mood because I'm tired. Right. And on top of that is that people in order for us to have good sexual experiences, it requires some emotional and physical investment. Good sex is about kind of like engaging in a good foreplay, being present in the moment. And when we're tired, we're just checked out. We just don't don't have energy to do anything for foreplay. So that's hard to lean into pleasure as much. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. And I think on top of that, as you talk about circadian rhythm, some people are morning and people and some people are afternoon or evening and their partner might be different. So I think navigating that also is, is important. So what are some of the recommendations you have for people that in order for them to correct some of the mistakes that they're making around sleep. I would say that specifically as it, re- as it relates to sexuality, a lot of women will say exactly what you just did. Like at the end of the day, they're tired. Like they're not in the mood, like the kids, work, life, you know? So one, one of the things I say is like, you know, see, you know, a lot of people are still working from home, like wake up and have sex in the morning, right? Like the sex at dawn kind of phenomenon or the mid-afternoon delight, right? If you both are working from home, you guys can take a little break at like two o'clock and, and connect there because at that point, you're still not like exhausted in the way that you are at, you know, nine or 10 or 11 o'clock in the evening. So that would be number one. But in terms of optimizing our sleep, there's a couple of things. 
that I will tell people and sleep actually you're having good sleep actually starts in the morning. And I know that that sounds a little bit backwards because you're supposed to wake up in the morning and that's true. But one of the best things that you can do for going to bed at a right time is what you, what you just mentioned is that circadian rhythm. So what I'll counsel women to do is within, you know, 30 minutes of waking. So, you know, you get up, you brush, you know, wash your face, brush your teeth, whatever, go outside and try to find the sun. So try to look at the sun. And what we're doing there is the sun in the morning, especially when it's sort of lower on the horizon, has a lot of blue light. It has a lot of yellow light, a lot of a green light. And I know we, you hear a lot in like, oh, blue light is bad, but it's bad in the evening. In the morning, that actually will send a signal. So there's an area in your brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, don't worry about the name. It's just like, you know, if you, if you don't, it's SCN for short, but it's this little area just kind of above the optic chiasm. That's why it's called supra chiasmatic. And it, it is the master clock for the body. So when you get this retinal, you have all this light coming into the retina, then this is going to be picked up by the SCN. And it is going to tell all the cells in your body, it's time to wake up everyone, like everyone get going start making that ATP, start making those hormones, like start getting things ready for the day. Right. So that's one of the best, best pieces of advice. I could tell everybody the way that that works in my life is I, you know, I typically wake up around somewhere between six and six 30 in the morning. I'll go downstairs. I make a little espresso and I'll go outside and I'll drink my espresso outside. So I hear the birds tweeting. I'm looking at the sun as it's sort of still kind of lowish um, on the horizon and I'm getting that input into my brain. So that's, that's the first piece. And honestly, if you just do that and like, that's available to everybody, right? It's free. You're not buying some like biohacking device, like it's the sun. So everybody can do that. And if you're in a, if you're in a dense, like if you're living in a condo building, let's say, or, you know, you're living in a place where maybe you're living like, you know, far North or you don't like you're, you know, in Sweden or something, you know, I would just say, honestly, like for the, for the apartment dwellers, like go downstairs like find, and find the sun, like on the sidewalk, like find the sun, if you don't face it. And that's the first thing I would say in the evening, as much as it's possible, like I know we're all on our computers and it's, you know, it's just an unavoidable part of modern life. But as much as you're able to set a hard stop for being on your phone and being on your and watching, you know, TV, being on your computer. And if you are someone who goes to bed at 10, then the cutoff for you would be eight. Like, so at least two hours before you go to sleep, you're off of your device. And I know it's really tempting at the end of a really long day to just like sit with your phone and aimlessly scroll on Instagram. Like I'm, I've been there as well. Like that's, that's been something that I've done, but it absolutely impacts your sleep. And the, the way that it does it is through the blue light that we were talking about. So in the morning, blue light is great. In the evening, what it does is it suppresses the release of our sleep hormone called melatonin. So everyone's kind of heard of melatonin. You can buy melatonin as a supplement, but melatonin is basically the thing that makes us feel that initiates sleep that actually helps us fall asleep. 
So that would be my number number two tip would be like two hours before you go to sleep, try to stay away from devices. Like don't watch Netflix until the last minute, you know, get off your phone. Like, you know, talk to your, if you have people in your family, like play cards with them or play, we play board games in the house or we'll go for walks in the evening, that kind of thing. And then the last piece, which I think is important as well, because it's just part of our daily life is caffeine consumption. So I love coffee. You know, I just told you I have an espresso. I usually have two espressos, like one, like first thing in the morning, and then I'll have maybe another one around nine or 10, but it really is about the timing of your coffee. So coffee is like, you know, America's favorite, you know, favorite drug. (laughs) It's like, you know, revs us up. It's a stimulant. It's there's like lots of antioxidants. If you're getting a good quality coffee, stimulates dopamine, desire, all the things. However, when we are consuming it, over consuming it, it can hang around in the body for much longer than we want. So it can impede sleep because of the time that it takes for the body to actually degrade and get rid like and metabolize the caffeine. So typically for most people, caffeine is metabolized. It has a half-life of about six hours. So it takes six hours for you to decrease the concentration of your cup of coffee by half. So if you say, like, let's say you have a cup of coffee at two o'clock, right? You know, if you add, you know, six hours to two o'clock, that brings you up to eight and you still have 50% of the coffee left over at 8 p.m. from your 2 p.m. coffee, right? And then if you sort of follow the math, like it's still it's still kind of a hanging around by about midnight. So you you really want to be careful about having coffee too late in the in the afternoon. So I usually will say like last call for coffee is like noon. So those are like my three, three big ones. Three well, it's, three. it's wonderful. They were wonderful. And funny thing that like, I'm looking at my coffee here. I can smell it. <laughs> You're talking about two o'clock in the coffee and then quarter to three. Yeah. <laughs> you but, can smell it. You can still smell it. <laughs> I was like thinking, oh, she's, is she seeing? <laughs> but I think these are great actionable things that people can do because they feel like many, many of my clients, they struggle to have energy for sex because they're exhausted mm-hmm. and uh, there are things that oh, we might not have as control over such as this, our work schedule at times but uh, it's doing simple action as you mentioned that we can make drastic changes again <laughs> i'm preaching about it as i'm looking at smelling my coffee here <laughs> <laughs> well listen i'm not i'm not perfect right so this is not like i'm not doing this 100 percent of the time but i am doing this like 90 percent of the time there's going to be the time where i'm out you know you know for dinner and we're going to have a little coffee afterwards or a little bite and I'm eating later than I should and all those things. And and that's, you know, that's like the pleasure in life. Like this, you know, rules are also meant to be broken, but it's about doing the right thing most of the time so that you can take, you know, you can enjoy it when you're with in the company of people that you love, or there's a celebration or there's something that you want to partake in and you don't want to restrict yourself there. So I I absolutely agree. And thank you so much for making me feel better about it. On my coffee. I know that this is a small, was a, this conversation was a small fraction of what you have in your book. I feel like every page it was filled with great information. So if people want to get your book, they want to hear about your podcast, what are some of the places they can find that? 
Oh, thank you. So I would say that if you want to start, you know, finding a little bit more about my work, I too have a podcast just like you, Doc. My podcast is called Better with Dr. Stephanie. So anywhere that you're listening to this podcast, my podcast is probably right alongside, right beside yours. And then the book that we've been talking about today is called The Betty Body, A Geeky Goddess's Guide to Intuitive Eating, Balanced Hormones, and Transformative Sex. And that's available... Uh, you can buy that at Amazon. There's, you know, Barnes and Noble. There's a, any online retailer, Goodreads. I know it's there. So you can you can buy it at any any online retailer as well. Awesome! Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for being so generous with the information. And I bet it, this conversation helped many people. And I encourage them to read your book as well. I sure hope so. And thank you. It's been a delight talking to you. Hope you guys found our conversation useful and gave you some pointer on what are some of the changes you can make in your diet, in your lifestyle today to improve your sexual health. If you have been making adjustment and you've been seeing results, feel free to DM me, let me know. You can find me in Instagram at Sexology Podcast. And please, please don't forget to take five minutes to answer some questions in our our survey questions so we can create the content that you will be excited to listen to. And I cannot wait to hear your feedback. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.